listening to the VC20 Podcast, a space for meaningful conversations and relevant teachings. Let's go to God's Word. Philippians chapter 4, as you're turning there, if you would stand with me. Philippians chapter 4. I don't hear the rustling of a lot of pages, so this is my gentle reminder to bring your Bibles to church, bring a journal if you're feeling super spiritual, and follow along. Philippians chapter 4 is where we'll be. I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 4. We're going to read down through to verse 9. The Word of God says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. This Paul's doing here what we used to do back in the day. Remember when you had to actually recite your phone number for somebody? Before you could airdrop or text a contact or whatever, you would have to say, hey, call me at 614-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's 614. That's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Think really hard about these things. That's not what he says. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, do the stuff. He says, put this into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For those of you who are unaware, we do that little call and response At the conclusion of our scripture reading, I or whoever's preaching will say, this is the word of the Lord. That's your cue to respond. Thanks be to God. When we say that, we don't just say that out of uh, rote obligation. We say that to truly honor and celebrate that God has spoken to us. And that's that's good news, right? We don't serve a quiet, silent God. We serve a God who speaks. Amen? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, would you meet us tonight? Lord, we love you. We exalt you. We're sitting down already, Jesus, but that's okay. You're still worthy. God, would you preach a better sermon than the one that I'm about to preach? Would you enable us by your spirit to cast our anxieties, all of our cares on you? Father, I pray that those who walked in here tonight burdened and heavy and weighed down by the anxieties of life, I pray that they would walk out of here lighter, having been refreshed by your spirit, by your presence. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, amen. You guys may be seated. So tonight, we're going to wrap up our sermon series that we've been in for the last several weeks called The Cruciformed Life. How many of you have been blessed by this sermon series so far? Great, like four of you. Okay, are, are Ellie and I doing that poor of a job? Come on, somebody. Have you been blessed? Have you, has the Lord given you something? During this sermon series. I, I mean, that's cool with me, y'all. If I'm not preaching to any of y'all, I'm preaching to myself. I, and I've been preaching good, I tell you what. 
Ellie's word was, was masterful, talking about the implications of us being in Christ, united with Christ. If this sermon series isn't an encouragement to you, it's been good for me, y'all. But tonight, because this is our final week in this sermon series, I'm going to try to squeeze in what should be two sermons into one, and I'm going to do it as, as quickly as I possibly can. Uh, to begin with, I just want to start by saying something that we all know and will readily acknowledge, and that's this. We live in an anxious age. We live in an anxiety-ridden age. Anxiety can be broadly defined as fear of the future or fear of the unknown. Let's take an informal poll. How many of you would say that you struggle in some measure with anxiety, just by a show of hands? So nearly everybody. Those of you who don't have your hands raised, you are lying. So we all struggle to some degree with anxiety. If you just Google millennials, Gen Z, and anxiety, the internet, internet and internet, there's a guy named Nate behind there punching away. <laughs> all, I can get, all I have in my head is that frantic gif of that cat pounding away at the keyboard. That's Nate. Nate the cat. If you, if you ask Nate the cat about Gen Z and millennials and anxiety, Nate will populate for you a seemingly endless uh, amount of results that indicate that y'all are anxious and I am anxious. Our anxiety is triggered by uh, an end, another endless list of, of triggers. We, we are anxious because we realize the, that injustice is rampant in our world and has caused us to lose hope. We're anxious because we're straddled with debilitating student loan debt. Amen, somebody. We're anxious because we're making major decisions like where we're going to go to college, what we're going to major in, or where we want, and where we want to live, and what career we want to pursue. And, and God knows we don't want to make the wrong decision, and so we are anxious. I want you to do me, do me a favor. Do, the, do something for me that, that might be a bit uncomfortable or awkward, but uh, just go with me here. I want you to take a moment and share with somebody around you one thing that presently causes you anxiety. If you're here by yourself, actually scan the room, and if somebody is seated by themselves, I want, I want you to actually go and interact. Keep your distance. Don't be weird. Don't get your COVID particles on them. But I want you to actually share a moment with one another. Everybody in this room, I want you to vocalize. I want you to, to express one thing that causes you anxiety. Take 30 seconds and share with somebody around you. Amen. Go ahead and bring it back. Everybody feeling nice and anxious? Hopefully not. Here's the reason why I had y'all do that, because I think there is really, there's real power in being able to name whatever it is that you're wrestling with. I also think there's freedom in knowing that you aren't the only one wrestling with whatever it is that you're going through, that we are all, in some measure, like I said, wrestling through anxiety. Now, with all that in mind, let's turn our attention back to the text that we read just a few moments ago. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. There's a way to read this passage that makes it sound like a rebuke. On the surface, it seems like Paul is really disappointed and even somewhat angry for the Philippian church. I don't know if you read it this way, but here's how I used to read this, this text. Paul would say something like, stop worrying. Don't be anxious. What are you doing? Get your stuff together. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Don't be anxious. You need to rejoice more. You aren't rejoicing enough. You need to rejoice more. Stop being anxious. That's, 
I don't know if that's you, but that's sort of how I used to read this passage. But, but I think it's important for us to realize that, that this isn't a rebuke because keep in mind, Paul is writing to a Philippian church that he loves, that he is proud of. Paul points out consistently throughout the book of Philippians that the Philippian church in many ways is a model church. He, he commends them for their love and for their faithfulness. Just a few verses earlier in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1, Paul calls them, the Philippian church, my brothers and sisters. This is familial language. He says, my brothers and sisters, whom I long for, my joy and my crown. He says, y'all are my joy. So rather than a rebuke, this is instead an invitation to walk in the fullness of life with Christ. A life that should be characterized by joy and gentleness and thanksgiving and peace. Paul outlines five imperatives. He gives five commands in this text tonight. And I just want to walk through all five of these with you one by one. The first one is this. Paul says, rejoice. He begins by saying, rejoice in the Lord always. When should you rejoice? Always. This command to rejoice, this command to be joyful and celebratory, is for every situation. This command is unequivocal. Paul tells us to rejoice always. Now let me begin by letting you know what Paul is not saying here, okay? Paul isn't saying that we should be so naive as to deny the fact that we all go through hardship and pain and suffering. Paul isn't saying that we should pretend that life isn't hard when it so evidently is for so many of us. We have people right now in this community who are going through divorces because of unfaithfulness and infidelity. We have somebody who I love, one of our leaders who just texted me before service. This young woman has been going through a living hell. At the beginning of the year, she lost two people in her life who were close to her. She lost her boyfriend's father. She lost her sister's best friend. These two folks whom she lost were like family to her. She texted me before service and said, over the last two weeks, she's lost two additional family members. I'm looking at, I'm scanning this crowd, and I know for certain that some of you have lost loved ones to COVID-19. My brother Mike over here lost both grandparents to COVID-19. Perhaps you've lost somebody to, to some other terminal illness. I know some of you have lost jobs because of this pandemic. Some of you are experiencing some measure of financial hardship. Some of you are going through some relational mess right now. Perhaps it's a schism between a friend, somebody who, who at one point you considered your best friend, and now by, for, for some reason they've become your worst. I, I don't know what it is for you. That's not to mention the myriad of things that you yourself might be going through. Paul isn't saying put on a smile and look on the bright side. This call to rejoice doesn't preclude the experience of real feelings of sorrow and grief. Instead, what Paul is saying is that in spite of these sorrows, for those of us who are in Christ, we still have a reason to rejoice because our joy is where? He says rejoice in? Talk to me, thank you. He says rejoice in the Lord. He's saying these broken circumstances don't have to define us, and neither will they have the final word because for those of us who are in Christ, we hold on to the hope 
of the resurrection. Christ's victory over death assures us of our salvation. The reality that we have gone from death to life in Jesus. And this is a reality. This is an unshakable truth that will endure forever, regardless of what you find yourself presently going through. That is a spiritual and eternal truth that can never be undone, regardless of what your circumstances might say. But it also assures us that redemption is possible. And redemption is on the way. So we rejoice, not in death, not in divorce, not in relational strain, not in financial hardship. We rejoice in the Lord. Am I talking to anybody tonight? We rejoice in the Lord. We should not, listen to me, VC20. We should not be looking at our circumstances and thinking of the thousand reasons we have not to rejoice. Paul says, instead, we should direct our attention to Jesus and in him find an infinite number of reasons to rejoice. He is yours and you are his. He is mighty to save. He is the eternal son of God. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is unmatched. He is unparalleled. He is the undisputed champion. I'm going to keep going until y'all get with me tonight. He is our savior. He is our Lord. He is our source. He is our sustainer. He is our everything. And because you are found in him, as Paul says in chapter three, there is nothing, no present earthly circumstance that will ever change that truth. In his commentary on the book of Philippians, Karl Barth says this. He says, joy in Philippians is a defiant nevertheless. I love that. He says, joy is a defiant nevertheless that Paul sets like a full stop against Philippian anxiety. In other words, he says this. You may say of yourself, yeah, I might be going through. Yeah, life isn't working out the way that I anticipated. Yeah, I have some stuff that I need to work out and work on, but nevertheless, I will rejoice because my joy is in Jesus. What Paul is saying is this. With Jesus, rejoicing is always appropriate, even though it isn't always easy. Paul challenges us on where our joy truly resides. C.S. Lewis would say it like this. He says, you should never place your joy in something that you may ultimately lose. Put your joy in your social status. Put your joy in your career. Put your joy in your partner. Put your joy in your friends. You want to know what what all those things have in common? Eventually, they all go away. Paul challenges where we've placed our joy. Put your joy in Jesus. Rejoicing is always necessary, always appropriate, even when it isn't easy. So that's the first command. Paul tells us to rejoice. Here's the second thing. He says, let your gentleness be known. Some of your translations, like mine, says, let your reasonableness be known. It's a word we don't often use. But notice it doesn't say, be known by your makeup routine, or your clean eating diet, or your wardrobe or your singing abilities, or the myriad of other things that we would likely want to be known for. He doesn't say be known by any of these things. He says, if you're known for anything, may it be your gentleness. That word in the Greek is the word epi-case. Epi-case. Can you say that? Epi-case. Well done. In the Greek, it has so much more character and substance than it does when it's rendered here in the English. It means to bear with somebody. To bear with someone even beyond what seems fair or reasonable. This word is about putting aside grievance and offense and instead 
extending grace to one another. Now, grace, let me just clarify something for you really quickly. Look up at me here so I know you don't miss this. Grace has gotten a bad rap because somewhere along the way, we have mistaken grace as being synonymous for tolerance. But these two words don't mean the same thing. Grace doesn't mean let somebody continue in their sin. A gentle person, as Paul calls us to be here in Philippians 4, a gentle person does not dismiss those in error. Instead, what he means by being gentle is he says we should endure patiently and serve the person who offends us so that they can come to know the truth. The gentle person calmly applies the truth in service to others. A gentle person is someone who bears much and bears it well and bears it for a very long time and allows that witness to redirect their offender to the truth. This might seem a bit disjointed here. Paul begins by saying, rejoice in the Lord. Here in a few moments, I'm going to tell you what he says following this. He's going to tell us not to be anxious. Why, Paul, then, do you include this, this relational piece here? I believe it's because this is Paul's answer, in part, to the relational anxiety that we all face in this room. Dealing with people is difficult because people are sinners. They're sinful just like you and just like me. And to be in relationship with someone is to lay yourself bare to the possibility of being hurt. To be in relationship with somebody is risky because it means that they could possibly hurt you or harm you or slander you or let you down or offend you. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Again, another C.S. Lewis quote. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. But so often, in light of these offenses, we respond not with gentleness. How do we respond? We respond with revenge and bitterness or by canceling one another. How many of you saw the uh, Oprah interview with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle? Wave at me. Y'all are lying. Wave at me if you saw the dang interview. I know you saw it. I didn't see it because I'm a real Christian. I was, I was praying. I was praying. I was in the third heaven with Jesus. I actually didn't see the interview, but I, I, caught, I caught the drift just based on social media. And I remember seeing one post that struck me, and it was celebrating Megan for cutting off people who weren't contributing to her good life, her, her well-being, people who weren't contributing to her well-being. They were celebrating Megan for cutting off toxic people. And I don't know if this is good or bad or not, y'all. I'll let, I'll let you decide. But I read this, and my spirit was grieved. And I thought to myself, how this must must hurt the heart of God that we are so quick to cancel other people. I'm not saying that boundaries aren't important. Neither am I saying you should stay in relationship with someone who proves to be toxic to you over the long haul. But I am saying that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you have? I don't intend to reconcile these two truths tonight. The truth on the one hand that we are to to be gentle and bear with somebody for a long time. This is what it means to be long-suffering. It means to suffer for a long time. I don't intend to reconcile the truth that we should be long-suffering with the truth that we should also have really healthy boundaries. I don't think these two are intended to be reconciled. I believe we're supposed to hold them in tension But my encouragement, my charge to you, VC20, is hold on to both. And if you are known by anything, 
pray that you are known by your gentleness. Paul goes on to say this. He says, don't be anxious. Verse 6, he says, don't be anxious about anything. Again, it's unequivocal. Don't be anxious about anything. I want you to notice the language here. It's curious how the Bible allows no provision for anxiety. There's never a point in Scripture where, where God says, oh, you're going through that? Yeah, you should be a little worried. And he says, don't be anxious for anything. Now, I know that for some of you, as soon as you hear Paul say, don't be anxious, your immediate response, much like mine, is to say, easier said than done, Paul. Anybody, anybody feel that tonight? Anybody relate to that? Yeah, easier said than done, Paul. The first thing I thought about was the fact that, that I am on an anti-panic medication. Because after my stroke, my anxiety got so debilitating. And it would manifest itself, not only mentally, but bodily, so much so that Elise would would literally have to put her whole body on top of mine to keep me from shaking in an attempt to calm me down. Come to find out I have PTSD. PTSD is common among stroke survivors. And the only way I can describe it is to imagine for a moment what it's like to be fixated on one single thing, to have one single thought dominate and consume your entire being. And try as you might, you can't think about anything else. It's almost as if this thought has taken you hostage. For me, that thought is the thought of having another stroke. And Paul says to that, don't be anxious. Are you sure, Paul? Now, this is where it's really important to remember that this is not a rebuke. Instead, this is an invitation. For Paul, anxiety doesn't work like a light switch where we can simply turn it on and turn it off. Instead, the invitation is for you and I to no longer shoulder or bear our anxiety by ourselves. When you bear your anxiety alone, it results in poor decision-making and you developing coping mechanisms that will ultimately compound the heartache. When you bear anxiety by yourself, that's when you start overspending. That's when you start shopping. That's when you start overeating. That's when you start Netflix binging. That's when you start dissociating and you, and you further retract from community and you, and, you, and you crawl into deep and dark places of isolation. Paul says, give your anxieties over to God. Don't bear these things by yourself any longer. He says in verse 6, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Because this is a command, it seems to me that Paul is saying here that we have agency when it comes to our anxiety. We may not be able to control where it comes from, and we may not be able to control how it affects us when it gets here, but we do get to control where we take our anxiety. Follow me here. I was reading a book to my boys just last night, and I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me through this book. It's a book called The Wolf, the Duck, and the Mouse. The Wolf, the Duck, and the Mouse. It's, a, it's, about, a, it's about a mouse who gets eaten by a wolf. And the mouse finds himself in the belly of the wolf, and there he sees a duck. The duck had been consumed by the wolf as well. But this duck is sitting in the belly of the wolf, 
and he's eating dinner by candlelight and he's listening to music. And the mouse says to the duck, duck, it sort of seems like you like it down here. And the duck says, yes, you're absolutely right, mouse, because although I've been swallowed, I refuse to be eaten. Go with me here, VC20. Anxiety might want to swallow you up, but you get to decide whether or not you're going to be eaten. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this verse in the message. He says, instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know all of your concerns. Eugene Peterson, like Paul, encourages us to unload all of our worries onto the God who cares for us instead of trying to shoulder your anxieties alone. Notice Paul says that our prayer should be characterized by thanksgiving. Why? Let me just read this. If the root of anxiety is the fear of the unknown, then thanksgiving is calling to mind what we know to be true about our God. Thanksgiving says, in the face of anxiety, I may not know what my future holds, but I know my God. I know the God who holds my future. He has promised and he has appointed me for me a hope and a future. Thanksgiving is reminding yourself of all that God has done for you. Now, let me summarize this section by pointing out to you, Paul offers us this rhythm. And I want you to take notes, write this down. I encourage you to walk yourself through this process next time you feel feelings or a sense of anxiety uh, creeping in. Paul offers us this rhythm of refuse, remind, and request. Refuse, remind, request. He says, refuse to be anxious. Elsewhere, Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. He says, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Refuse to be anxious. And then he says to remind, through a spirit of thanksgiving, remind yourself of who God is and what he has done for you. And then request, make your needs known to God. First Peter chapter five, verse seven, calls us to cast all of our cares on him because he cares for us. That word cares means that he thinks about you all the time, that he's first concerned for your good that there's nothing that you endure or experience that he isn't aware of and that he doesn't have provision for. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. And this command to not be anxious is partnered with a glorious promise. Paul says in verse seven, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, sometimes in response to our prayers, God will step in and change our circumstances. Sometimes if the root of your anxiety is an illness, God will heal you or will heal somebody or will heal the loved one that's struggling with illness. Sometimes if the root of your anxiety is financial strain, God will step in and supernaturally surprise you you with a job that you weren't qualified for and you weren't expecting. Sometimes God will step in and will change our circumstances circumstances, but that's not what's promised to us here. God's, the promise is God's supernatural peace will reign in your heart. That means your thoughts, your emotions, your reason, everything that constitutes your interior life will be guarded by the peace of God. Now that word guard in the Greek is a word picture and it's used to, to illustrate an army standing at the gate of a city And that army is prepared to to defend that city 
against invasion. So what Paul is trying to express here is that all the enemies of worry, doubt, stress, and uncertainty will be overcome and prevailed upon by the army of God's peace. Let me say it to you this way. Has anybody ever been to the club? Wait, go ahead and put your sin out there. Anybody been to the club? Thank you, thank you, all my honest folks. Again, I've never been to the club because I am saved, sanctified, set free. I don't, I don't entertain debauchery. I'm holy. No, I've, I've never been to the club because I can't dance. And like, that is literally hell on earth for me. But if going to the club is anything like it's depicted on TV, then there's usually some big buff guy dressed in all black. He's a bouncer. And his responsibility is to keep everyone out who doesn't belong in that club, whether it's because they're underage or because they don't quite fit the vibe. Now go with me here. The peace of God is like the bouncer at the club of your heart. And it's this bouncer's job to keep anything out that would contribute to your anxiety. I say that in a joking manner, but this is good news, you guys. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We're not even going to get to these last two. I want to close with this. And perhaps this is the most important point tonight. If you miss everything I've told you already, and I pray by the help of the Holy Spirit that you haven't, but if you've missed everything I've said to you already, I pray that this settles into your spirit. I want you to notice the location of this peace. This peace is only afforded to those of us who are in Christ. Paul says the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. This peace is only afforded to those of us who are in Christ. Apart from Christ, you may achieve or obtain some sort of peace counterfeit, something that might afford you some momentary peace. You might be able to do some yoga. You might be able to, to hold your breath and count backwards from 10. You might be able to read the latest mindfulness book, but these are counterfeits. You will never have the peace of God until you first have peace with Jesus. This is why every single Sunday, we take a moment during our service to pass the peace with one another. Every part of our liturgy is thoughtful, you guys. We don't pass the peace to buy time for the preacher to make their way to the stage. We pass the peace as a way to revel in the reality that you and I at one time were estranged from God and we were justly objects of his wrath. But the moment you tie yourself to Jesus by faith, you go from being a rebel and an orphan to a son and a daughter. You go from being hostile to God to having peace with God by the blood of Jesus. And it isn't until you thrust yourself on the mercies of Christ and say, Jesus, I've come to terms with the fact that I am a desperate sinner in need of God's grace. And I'm choosing to believe that through your death on the cross, you have declared that I am worth it, that I am loved, that I am fully known and fully loved. And I want that to be my reality, Jesus. 
I want that to be what defines me. Not my sin, not my mistakes. I want the cross of Christ to be the thing that defines me. And upon the moment where you say yes to Jesus, you are brought once and for all into right relation. You have peace with God. Many of you in here tonight might say, Shane, I long for the peace that you've described. The peace that surpasses understanding. The peace that prevails over anxiety. The peace that guards my heart and mind. That peace is afforded to you tonight. But it can only be found in Jesus. Let's go to him together. I want you to know tonight that this peace isn't being offered to you like a carrot dangling from a string. And God is in heaven hanging this, this offer of peace out in front of you, almost teasing you with it, waiting for you to run fast enough, to go hard enough. That's not the offer of peace that's being afforded to you tonight. There are no hoops you have to jump through. Scripture says that if anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you want to know the peace that I'm talking about, the peace that is only found in Jesus, right where you are, in your own heart, in the stillness and simplicity of this moment, I want to encourage you, just call on the name of Jesus. And when you do, I have so much faith that the weight that you walked in here with is going to be lifted from your shoulders. You say, Shane, how do I know I'm saved? Trust me, you'll know. Call upon the name of the Lord tonight. Say, Jesus, peace has proven to be so elusive in my life. I've tried everything else, and it's all been weighed and found wanting in my heart. I'm coming to you. Jesus, I'm coming to you. Thank you for listening to the BC20 podcast. Make sure to subscribe for more sermons and intentional conversations. You can also check us out online at bc20.com.